The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I'm sorry, but that's my decision. I can't accept it. I've never thought of anyone but you. All these years must mean something. I'd be a fool to let you end them because of a silly squabble over politics. But it's more than a silly squabble over politics. I know now I couldn't live in your world. It's because I know it's going to be difficult that I want to help you. But how can you help me? You belong to this new Germany that's come between us. This new Germany that persecutes my people. Frey, I love you. That's all that matters. It's all over. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 22nd, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our last two shows, Commemorating Remembrance Day, turned out to hold far more significance to current events than I could ever have predicted, given what happened at the Remembrance Day ceremonies held in France on November 11th. It was just unbelievable. If you caught last week's show, you will recall that it ended with my asking our guest, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, Salim Mansour, Have we learned nothing from history since most of the world is going down the socialist path again? And if you recall, he he turned to me and he said, we learn from history what we want to learn. And I couldn't argue with that. So although some lessons were learned, at least for a short period, we have yet to want to learn the most important lesson of all. Our discussion on globalism, nationalism, socialism, capitalism, greed, selfishness, and altruism begins right after this reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and all of our archived broadcasts. From the National Post, November 12, 2018, the old demons are rising again. Subheading reads, Macron attacks nationalism in remarks marking the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. Written by John Leicester, Raf Cassert, and Laurie Hinnett in Paris. And I quote, As Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, Justin Trudeau, and dozens of other heads of state and government listened in silence, French President Emmanuel Macron used the occasion as its host to sound a powerful and sobering warning about the fragility of peace and the dangers of nationalism and of nations that put themselves first above the collective good. The old demons are rising again, ready to complete their task of chaos and of death, Macron said. Patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism, he said. In saying our interests first, whatever happens to others, you erase the most precious thing a nation can have, that which makes it live, that which causes it to be great, and that which is most important, its moral values. 
Trump, ostensibly the main target of Macron's message, sat stony-faced. The American president has proudly declared himself a nationalist. But if Trump felt singled out by Macron's remarks, he didn't show it. At the summit, Justin Trudeau said attacks on the press are a lever some use to fuel anxiety about automation of jobs, international trade, and ultimately to undermine our trust in institutions and increase our cynicism. When people feel their institutions can't protect them, they look for easy answers in populism, in nationalism, in closing borders, in shutting down trade, in xenophobia. Macron, Trudeau, and other leaders came to Paris hoping to use the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War to renew calls to quash festering tensions across the globe. Macron warned how fragile peace can be in an age where the tensions that gave rise to four years of bloody battle costing millions of lives appear to be festering again. He told the assembled masses that the, quote, traces of this war never went away, end quote. Well, that last comment was unfortunately very true. Socialism is still with us to this very day. And socialism is the common denominator that brings war, hatred, and strife to humanity over and over and over again as each generation does not want to learn the lessons of the previous generation, the important lesson. The irony is that those old demons are best represented by Macron, Merkel, and the EU, which is, in fact, attempting to form its own nation and its own brand of nationalism. I mean, go figure. Well, a couple of weeks ago on the show, during our reflection on World War I, Salim Mansour quoted Rudyard Kipling thusly, quote, If any question why we died, tell them, because our fathers lied. End quote. And in sharing that sentiment... You know, it's alarming to consider that even today, the same great lie continues to be perpetuated. What is that lie? That socialism is good and nationalism is bad. You know, the period between the two world wars saw the collapse of the European empires, the creation of nation-states, the rise of communism and of national socialism in Germany, and the adoption of socialism as the remedy for economic hardships in all of the European states. Everybody did it. And it was a witch's brew, as Salim called it, in which they all simmered and which eventually resulted in World War I and in World War II that collective suicide, quote-unquote, that is an inevitable consequence, well, of collectivism itself, isn't it? Alarmingly, today we increasingly find ourselves in that same collectivist brew, suffering under the same ideologies that precipitated both wars, ideas that originated and germinated in Europe, mostly in Germany. Though all European nations involved in the last two world wars practiced both nationalism and socialism, nationalism got the bad name. It became to be seen as the evil, and socialism was portrayed as the good. So that's what happened. In creating this moral inversion, it was really a false lesson we learned from history, that nationalism was the problem, globalism is the solution. However, History repeatedly demonstrates that it's not nationalism, but socialism that's the true evil and the problem. And socialism, whether it's ideologically motivated by communism or fascism, is the common denominator that leads to mass death and destruction. Today's globalists 
are the children of Marx and Engels and Lenin, said Salim, if you recall, after enumerating socialism's total unparalleled history of death and destruction just in the last century alone. And the connection between socialism and war is, is a history lesson yet to be learned. We, don't, we, we just don't get it. In her 1966 essay, and it was called The Roots of War, Ayn Rand identified the root causes of war in a way that clearly demonstrates how history's lesson goes unheeded to this very day. And I have to quote this. We've done it before, but we're going back to basics today because, boy, that's where we're at. Quote, Let those who are actually concerned with peace observe that capitalism gave mankind the longest period of peace in history, a period during which there were no wars involving the entire civilized world. From the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 to the outbreak of World War I in 1914. Observe that the major wars of history were started by the more controlled economies of the time against the freer ones. For instance, World War I was started by monarchist Germany and Tsarist Russia, who dragged in their freer allies. World War II was started by the alliance of Nazi Germany with Soviet Russia and their joint attack on Poland. Observe that in World War II, both Germany and Russia seized and dismantled entire factories and conquered countries to ship them home, while the freest of the mixed economies, the semi-capitalist United States, sent billions worth of land-lease equipment, including entire factories, to its allies. Germany and Russia needed war. The United States did not and gained nothing. In fact, the United States lost economically even though it won the war. It was left with an enormous national debt, augmented by the grotesquely futile policy of supporting former allies and enemies to this day. Yet it is capitalism that today's peace lovers oppose and statism that they advocate in the name of peace. End quote. So here we are, more than half a century later, Ayn Rand's insight, both about war and about the leftist peace lovers of her time, sadly continues to be just right. By the way, did you catch Ben Shapiro's excellent interview with former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper this past Sunday? If not, you should definitely check it out. It was an eye-opener and certainly offered a stark contrast to the philosophy and viewpoints of Canada's current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. We'll be hearing a few samples from that interview as we return on the other side of our upcoming bumper. But first, on this side of the bumper, blogger Dave Cullen responding to the idea of having a European army set up to protect Europe from, among other nations, the United States. The big news of the day is the EU. Angela Merkel wants an EU army. Merkel joins Macron in calling for EU army to complement NATO. German Chancellor Angela Merkel endorsed the creation of an EU army on Tuesday, joining French President Emmanuel Macron, whose similar call in recent days drew a fusillade of wrathful tweets from the US President Donald Trump. Merkel threw her support behind the idea in an address to the European Parliament. Right when the EU's power and authority is being challenged from the likes of the UK and Eastern Europe like never before, these are its last desperate gasps to retain control. I can't help but get the sense that an EU army would be used to ensure that future Eurosceptic separatist movements would be quashed militarily. 
Jean-Claude Juncker already said that a common European army would show the world that there would never again be war in Europe, Merkel said, referring to the European Commission president. Jean-Claude Juncker has also said a great many other things that I believe are downright disgraceful, such as, when it becomes serious, you have to lie, and I'm ready to be insulted as being insufficiently democratic, but I want to be serious. I am for secret dark debates. So, I wouldn't be putting too much stock in what that guy says. Donald Trump's response to Macron's calls for an EU army was brilliant. Emmanuel Macron suggests building its own army to protect Europe against the US, China and Russia. But it was Germany in World Wars 1 and 2. How did that work out for France? They were starting to learn German in Paris before the US came along. Pay for NATO or not. In related news, French minister wants EU to become empire. Yay, tyranny! Earlier, French President Emmanuel Macron called for creation of a real European army, citing threats that EU institutions have been facing lately. He also noted that Europe must be protected against China, Russia and even the US. The US, really, a strong allied nation. You just want to create tension with the last remaining superpower on the planet, why? The cultural and historical links between Europeans and Americans are very strong. There's just no way Europeans are ever going to look at America as an enemy nation. French finance minister Bruno Le Maire voiced an unexpected idea during his interview with German media outlet Handelsblatt. He suggested that the EU should become a peaceful empire based on the principle of the rule of law. He added that Europe will be different from other empires, such as the US or China. Europe should no longer fear utilizing its power and be an empire of peace, he said. We should tell the US loud and clear, we are a sovereign continent and we decide ourselves with whom we have trade, Le Maire said. A sovereign continent. <laughs> The EU has systematically robbed its member states of their own national sovereignty and consolidated and centralized all of that power to Brussels. I have to say, I really don't like the sound of this guy's rhetoric one little bit. And I just want to get the hell away from these EU bureaucrat nutjobs. Thankfully, Nigel Farage was on hand in the Parliament to deliver a verbal smackdown. Well, Mrs Merkel, many of my Eurosceptic colleagues have been booing you this morning, but they shouldn't be in a way because the British should be cheering you. Without you, we'd never have made it over the line with Brexit, and I want to thank you very much for that. And, of course, many of these Eurosceptic groups on the right, the centre and the left will come back here after the next European elections in huge numbers directly as a result of your immigration and asylum policy. Your weak and cope led to a huge migrant tide, indeed a stampede, that came across the Mediterranean. Young men coming from very different cultures who were not going to integrate. Young men, none of whom would have qualified as being genuine refugees. And I think in many ways, we looked at it in the referendum and we said, we don't want to be part of an increasingly German-dominated European Union, and we certainly don't want to pay the price for Mrs Merkel's errors. And I believe, having heard you today and listening to senior French politicians over the last couple of days, that for us, leaving the European Union is now indeed a liberation. It's a European Union that we're told is now to become an empire, a militarised European Union, an undemocratic European Union, a European Union that seeks to continually expand to the east, a European Union that has launched a new Cold War against the United States of America, a European Union that tries to rewrite history. And I think 100 years on from the armistice, we should be genuinely worried. The idea that this new militarised union is somehow a recipe for peace 
I suggest you all sit back and think a little bit more carefully. Maybe you should all reread history. The European project was set up to stop German domination. What you've seen today is a naked takeover bid. So I think Brexit becomes a necessity after this. And for the rest of the countries, Mrs Merkel, you've had a long, successful career. But your political decision to open up the doors unconditionally is the worst decision we've seen in post-war politics in Europe. Is it not time for you at last to admit that you were wrong? Is it not time for you to say to German communities and many others, I'm sorry for what I've done to you and the problems I've inflicted upon you for many decades to come? And he said it all perfectly. The EU could actually create a new Cold War with America. What bizarro universe are we actually living in here? That's how the EU believes it's going to survive its inevitable downfall, is it? <laughs> how much longer is it going to take for everyday Europeans to realise exactly what this union is all about and what it's always been about? Power, control, authoritarianism, the destruction of the national sovereignty of its member states, mass immigration and the demographic replacement of European peoples. Why is it exactly that every day I feel as if this continent is gradually spiralling towards becoming the next USSR? Uh, let's talk for a second about foreign policy. Obviously, as a, as a Jew, I was very familiar with your uh, record on Israel as Prime Minister of Canada, very grateful for it as well. Why do you think it is that the left has moved so far in the anti-Israel direction? So that's a good question. And it started to become a more fundamentally kind of a hatred of our own society. Um, what I call alienism, the opposite of nationalism. Our culture's wrong. Our values are wrong. The other guy's always right. Um, and so... I support Israel, take the Israel situation. I support Israel. Um, I just tell people my views are not religious in nature and it's not a biblical interpretation. I support Israel because I see Israel as part of the Western Democratic Society of Nations, a vital ally in the most dangerous part of the world. And I see a retreat, uh, our, our, us retreating or abandoning Israel in that position of the world as detrimental long-term to our own basic national self-interest. I think it is critical that Western countries support Israel. I think it is incredibly myopic and dangerous politicians who for various other political expediency reasons want to abandon Israel. But I think the reason you see so much antipathy to Israel on the left is for precisely the same reason they see in Israel a society like ours and they want to blame it for all the problems of the region, which is nonsense. Um, and, you know, there's this deep dislike of our society, of the United States, of the West, and they see Israel as a manifestation of that. Um, but you see this all the time. And so this is the part of the modern left, and you see it all through foreign policy. We are always to blame. We are always at fault. And uh, we have nothing but to kind of beg forgiveness and learn from other societies. And I have a very different view, and I'm not going to say Western society or Canadian society is, has been or is faultless. But these are the most successful, freest, prosperous societies in the world. And they've also been the most dynamic, resilient, and adaptable societies, also the ones most likely to admit and correct error. And the idea that we should somehow be ashamed of our societies um, or, or that we should kind of, kind of go out into the world with perpetual self-doubt 
and, and flagellation, I just think is a, an aspect of modern liberalism I can't accept. Uh, I mean, but I think I, it's very fundamental to all of the foreign policy. Uh, I mean, I, I obviously agree. And what, what's, what's kind of fascinating, though, is you actually do see this strain in, in some elements of American libertarianism uh, and even in populism, this sort of isolationist withdrawal from the world mentality. Right. What do you make of that? And where, 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 why do you think that there's this sort of horseshoe effect, that you go far enough in one direction, you end up back at this isolation? Yeah, center? I see less isolationism in kind of what's happened with Trump and kind of American populism than some. I think it's more accurately described as unilateralism than isolationism. It's very different. Um, and and I, I don't think it's not without concerns. Um, I don't... On the other hand, I don't think it's always the case that multilateral institutions have been working really hmm. well for the United States or even for the West as a whole. So I, I, I do think a new balance needs to be struck. But, you know, look, it's still important. United States, I tell people, I, I'm very pro-American, as you know. United States is the most powerful and important country in the world, and certainly to Canada. It is the most important and powerful country uh, in the world. But that doesn't mean the United States can go into the world with no allies and no friends and expect to prosper in the long term. I do think unilateralism in the ex extreme is as bad as multilateralism in the extreme. That was Canada's former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who Canadians insanely decided to replace with Justin Trudeau. And perhaps that's in part why Harper has been speaking out more aggressively of late. When you hear him referring to his book, that book is called Right Here, Right Now, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. It was really fascinating to hear him talk about what he called alienism, the opposite of nationalism. That was the very viewpoint expressed by Salim Mansour last week when he talked about white guilt and Western society's self-loathing, which is a distinctive characteristic of our time, something you don't see too often. We'll be hearing a bit more from that interview shortly, but again, I recommend you check out the entire discussion between Harper and Shapiro, and don't be surprised if we revisit other topics they raised on our own future broadcast. The thing that struck me most was Harper's apparent understanding and support of Donald Trump's trade strategy using, you know, the threat of tariffs as a means of opening markets. And he seems to be one of the few people who understands that, that whole strategy. I was really surprised to see that. Now, as to Harper's support of Israel, Israel, of course, happens to be a nation. And if there's any doubt about how important national identity is to people, then you have to ask yourself what all the fuss about Palestine is about, right? Now, back when this show was broadcasting from Western University CHRW FM radio station, both Robert Vaughn and I strongly supported then Prime Minister Harper's stand on Israel, and we survived to return for many more broadcasts. <laughs> but going into the last Canadian federal election, Harper began sounding like Trump would later sound on the issue of flooding the country with so many refugees fleeing the Mideastern countries. He wanted to restrict the number of entrants into Canada and subject their entry to screening and vetting before being approved. Now, Robert and I supported that plan by Harper at the time, which was ironically also supported by Salim Mansour on a show we just did a couple of broadcasts earlier. And because of that, we were kicked off the air at CHRW for our specific support on that day. And the station's manager at the time told us that a single anonymous complaint that our views were racist and intolerant was the cause of our suspension. 
Now, we've talked about this on the show before, of course, and that happened on September 24th, 2015. That was our actual last live broadcast on CHRW. The Canadian federal election, interestingly, was held on October 19th of that same year, less than a month from the date of our final broadcast. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? Someone somewhere did not want the public to hear anything about our support of Prime Minister Stephen Harper's immigration stand at the time. So today, after everything we feared then has already happened, or is continuing to happen, it's nice to know that Stephen Harper's views on immigration are now being heard not only in Canada, but in the United States and abroad, and I can guess, no doubt, in Europe. Now, as to the whole notion of establishing a European army, especially in today's world political climate of socialism, remember Rand's observation. Statism needs war. A free nation does not. Does that tell you something? And to emphasize the point that socialism, not nationalism, or even globalism is the problem, we'll be expanding on that in our upcoming quarter. Because believe it or not, you know, I could be open to the concept of globalism if it was the right kind of globalism. But there's one more distinction I have to make, and it's a bit of a side issue, but it's one that identifies a very, very critical distinction between capitalism and all the other isms that are in competition with it. And that is this. Capitalism is not an invention, quote-unquote, or even a system, quote-unquote, of you know, created by political minds. It is a discovery made after thousands of years of trial and error. We are still in the process of discovering capitalism. Adam Smith was among the first to describe it. Unfortunately, it was a communist, Karl Marx, who ended up naming what we call capitalism in an effort to make capitalism sound like a political invention created by capitalists, who are rarely, if ever, in favor of capitalism. You know, that was the whole strategy. Capital is not an ism. But we're stuck with the name. We're stuck with that word. And it's a word that divorces and splits the economic component of freedom from its base. That's what's happened there. We shouldn't even have a word like capitalism. The only word we should really have to use is the word freedom. Because freedom is the only variable among the definitions of differing political ideologies. Unlike capitalism, which is just freedom, Socialism is an invention. It's like a fiction. It's a contrivance that is not based on any sound principles relating to reality or to reason. Capitalism, being freedom itself, is all about applying our reason to reality. So as we return to our subject of patriotism and nationalism, we are going to hear once again from Ben Shapiro and Stephen Harper in their, their segment from this past Sunday's Daily Wire, and maybe just a word or two from the president himself. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. Nationalist. Nothing else. Use that word. Use that word. Okay, so when it comes to you know, populist conservatism, 
uh, you talk about some, some areas where this would be distinguishable specifically from sort of a libertarian perspective on, on a variety of issues. Um, let's start with, with sort of the perspective yeah. on nationalism. So there's been a big debate okay. in the wake of President Trump about nationalism on the right. So there, there are right. some folks like Jonah Goldberg, I think I would count myself in this camp, who are, who are very attached to the idea of patriotism but not nationalism. There are a lot of folks like Rich Lowry at National Review, again, one of our colleagues there, who's very attached to nationalism as distinct from patriotism. Do you see a distinction between nationalism and patriotism? Not, and not really. So I, I argue in the book that a healthy nationalism is part of a healthy society. You know, I think the, the kind of the Germanies of the world where nationalism for historical reasons become kind of inherently sus suspicious is just, is, is frankly just wrong and wrong for conservatives. Now in that sense, as I say, I'm using patriotism and nationalism as virtually interchangeable. I would agree that if you get kind of far-right nationalism that's essentially ethnic or racial in character, it could become a different kind of beast. But frankly, conservatives don't advocate that kind of nationalism. Right. Okay. So wh where do you stand on, on immigration? So in the United States, obviously, this has become a massive question considering President Trump's position on the border. And there are a variety of positions. We've got sort of the libertarian position that says you want to come in and work, come on in and work, but you don't necessarily get citizenship. You've got the kind of far left and now mainstream left position, come on in no matter what, we'll try and give you citizenship, you don't have to assimilate. You've got the hard right restrictionist position, which is yeah. you're undercutting our labor base, don't come in at all, we don't want you here. Where do you come down on that? Well, what do you think uh, conservatives uh, want elements to come of down a couple of those things. Um, I'm, I'm fundamentally pro-immigration. I think one of the things that has made Canada, the United States, and our society successful is that we embrace newcomers who often, you know, I, frankly, are often conservatives. They're entrepreneurial, they're ambitious, they're aspirational, they believe in family, they believe in faith, they're opposed to crime, et cetera. So I actually, I actually think properly done, immigrants should be a really great base for a conservative party. But first and foremost, immigration has to be legal. Immigration is not a right. Immigration is something granted by the citizens of the country through law. I have no time for illegal immigration. And as I've told other leaders in other countries, no illegal immigration system or phenomenon will ever be popular with a mass of people. It just will not. Um, obviously, in a modern day and age, the immigration system should be scoped primarily around the country's economic needs. There can be humanitarian family considerations, but it's, it's fundamentally about the economy and about building our society. So look, I'm fundamentally, it, it's what I say about so much in the book, I'm fundamentally pro-immigration, just like I'm fundamentally pro-trade, pro-markets, but that doesn't mean that immigration is good no matter what, that having you know caravans of people invading the country would be a good thing, or um, that you can live, frankly, what I would consider the libertarian delusion that people will come into the country, but somehow they will have no access to social services. It's just never going to happen. So, you know, it's got to be a, it's got to be a policy rooted in what we have seen to be successful over the decade. What's happened in the United States, and this is what happens where you have unpopular or illegal immigration, public opinion turns against all immigration. And that's what I say a good conservative uh, approach would seek to avoid. So let's talk a little bit about the problems on the left. We've spent a lot of time yeah. talking about sort of the internecine philosophical battles, and it seems like it's leading to a, a tremendous radicalization of the left. I mean, the left is getting more left faster than the right is getting more well, right, it seems. Well, what's, what's happening, it depends on the country. So I think you see certainly the extreme example would be the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, which is turning into a Marxist party, which is now purging anyone who's, you know, not far left, anyone who's Jewish, by the way, like literally you kind of Stalinist type purges as it makes itself into an extreme vehicle. In other cases, like, you know, Socialist Party in France or Social Democrats in Germany, they're being just reduced to being a 
kind of a rump party of kind of center-left liberal elites um, with kind of no mass following anymore. I think the Democratic Party looks to me more headed down the Corbyn route, but time will tell. So it, it's it, different things are happening. In some cases, these parties are being eclipsed by more radical parties in the, on the left, and in other party cases, they're being taken over. Do you think this is going to lead to you know even more kind of partisan um, polarization? Because th this obviously has led to tremendous kind of political unrest in the United States to the point of near violence, or in some cases, violence. Uh, as, as the left splinters and moves well, look, the, to the left, the and as the right reacts to that. The fundamental point I make in my book is that these things are being driven. The reason these things are happening, we're seeing a radicalization of the electorate in virtually every election in the last three years. And the reason they're happening, it's not a mystery. For a very long period of time, the material lives of large percentages of the middle and working class have been getting poorer. And when people's lives get poorer, and in particular when their hopes begin to fade, which is what data really shows about some of these working class groups that have, have you know, lost their jobs or their traditional uh, work, um, what happens is that politics gets angrier, politics gets more difficult. What do you think of the world, Lucas? Is it good? Bad? It sucks, basically. If you could make it better, would you try? Yeah. yeah sure I would. 30 seconds. <laughs> 25! This is a foreign aid fund account in the States. The money was intended for humanitarian purposes in Asia, but it's moving to a blind account in Geneva. Fifteen. Held by a defense minister of the East Asian Confederation. Ten seconds. Five. Got it. Putting it where it's needed, in a hospital in rural China, where it'll buy vaccines and bandages. You don't even worry about being caught. The money's already stolen. Who's going to complain? In a world where people are hungry, people are greedy, people kill each other, we're taking a quiet stand. It's social engineering. What do you think of the world, Lucas? If you could make it a better place. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. From an episode of Sequest, Deep Sea Vehicle, that last audio bite was actor Tim Russ. You'll recall him of Star Trek Voyager fame. He played Tuvok, playing the socialist engineer who is foreign to the idea of aid. But the sentiment expressed by the social engineer in that clip is very much the one shared by globalists. And while I generally liked the comments expressed by Stephen Harper on the previous side of the bumper, I still cringe a bit when I hear seasoned politicians refer to racism as being an element of the far right, when we know that 
both in theory and in practice, racism is rooted in the pure collectivism of the left. The right is where freedom, capitalism, and democracy are to be found. But of course, as we discussed on past shows, we've got a long way to go before people stop using the traditional, you know, communism on the left, fascism on the right scale, which is demonstrably wrong. But Harper had it perfectly correct when he said that immigration is not a right. It's granted by citizens of a country through law. It must be legal. No illegal immigration will ever be acceptable by the masses. And he's totally right on that. So let's get down to the basic question. Is globalism a good thing or a bad thing? Because you can really make it into whatever you want. It sounds friendly, doesn't it? It's got that big happy family feeling. It sounds so inclusive, right? And that's what people like about that word. So the idea of globalism can be a bit ambiguous. On a purely technical level, globalism really could only have meaning if we're talking about some process of uniting the world under a single common jurisdiction and law. Now, does that necessarily mean a one-world government? Not really. You can do it a lot of ways. You can equally establish it through a series of contracts and treaties and agreements between governments of differing jurisdictions. That would mean nation-states. But the net result, as long as each nation abided by the agreed-to rules, it would be essentially the same. But it doesn't speak to the heart of the matter. That's not really the answer. Ideas are what change the world. And on a political level, on a moral and ethical level, differing concepts of globalism can and do mean the literal difference between wealth and poverty or life and death. So globalism, well, yes and no. I support global freedom, not global government control, organization, or management. I support global capitalism not global socialism, fascism, anarchism, Marxism, determinism, or any other ism you might care to mention. And I support individual rights, not group rights. The principle that every individual in the peaceful pursuit of personal fulfillment has an absolute right to his or own life, liberty, and property is the moral foundation of capitalism. And believe it or not, that's just one of the reasons that so many people are opposed to capitalism. One of the reasons people advocated globalism was to help fight world poverty, and that was part of the stated objective. But the problem is that globalism became anti-capitalistic. And if you're going to try and fight world poverty, it's not going to happen that way. So that's why people got into the whole foreign aid issue. Poverty is the natural result of all forms of collective estate control or management. And why is that? Because to cure poverty, you have to be able to produce and to possess wealth. Above a primitive level of tribal existence, production, which is wealth, requires the institution of private property, which is the pillar upon which capitalism and freedom rest. And it would be utterly impossible, think about this, it would be totally impossible to build cars, fridges, stoves, houses, space shuttles, computers, or even as simple a thing as a lead pencil without the myriad of private contracts, agreements, free market price structures, and free trade in place, combined with the talents of individuals exerting effort to deliver a service or product, it is 
only the structures of capitalism that can make the end product possible. And without that structure in place, the accumulation of wealth is not possible, at least for those without political power. The real story behind globalism and the foreign aid issue is about the efforts to misrepresent and conceal the principles of capitalism, and by so doing, thus perpetuating poverty. Poverty's big business. It's big politics. Poverty is ironically blamed on the only system capable of producing wealth, capitalism. Duh! This would be laughable except for the fact that so many people actually believe it. They see a relatively capitalistic nation and they see relatively higher wealth. They see a non-capitalistic nation and they see poverty. Many have concluded that the capitalist nation has somehow deprived the other nation of its wealth. And we've robbed them because maybe we gave them jobs or something like that. But of course that's not what's happening. The country without the wealth is the country without freedom or capitalism relative to the other one. Even when we pour billions of dollars into such countries, the general populace continues to remain poor or destitute. And, and why is that? Because nothing can accumulate. It's like trying to charge a dead battery or like trying to fill a bucket with no bottom in it. There's no place to store the capital. There's a hole in the bucket. We've talked about this before. There are no private property rights. And in the world of politics, the issue is not what we should do to solve poverty. It's what we should stop doing. Foreign aid is basically one of those things that we should stop doing. And we should start advancing capitalist theories, ideas, and above all, the morality of capitalism. Now I conclude with a quote from the greatest defender of capitalism that the world has ever known, and that's Ayn Rand, and she argues, quote, the essence of capitalism's foreign policy is free trade, the abolition of trade barriers, of protective tariffs, of special privileges, the opening of the world's trade routes to free international exchange and competition among the private citizens of all countries dealing directly with one another, end quote. Now here's Ben Shapiro speaking to a group of students on July 30th, 2018. The, the idea of socialism has become very popular among young people. And the reason that it's become popular among young people is because they've been told that it is moral. Not that it works, not that it's great, but that it's moral. It's fair. And we all like things that are fair. If we're in a room and somebody has more money and somebody has less money, wouldn't it be more fair if we just pooled the money and then we split it up evenly among the participants? You know, just like the cookies in kindergarten. Except, of course, that's not the way the world works, and that's not actually moral. Because in a free country, wealth and the capacity to gain it is largely contingent on the decisions that you make. It doesn't just fall upon you. Most wealth in the United States is not inherited. Most wealth in the United States is created over the course of lifetimes by people who engage in economic activity and commerce. Capitalism is good because capitalism is freedom. Socialism is bad because socialism is tyranny. Not it's an aspect of tyranny. Socialism itself is tyranny. The statement of socialism is that your labor is owed to the society. The notion of socialism is that you do not own your own freedom. You do not own your own time. You do not own your own labor. You do not own your own work. You do not own the products of your own work. The basic notion of capitalism is you own all of those things and now you have to engage in free exchange with someone else who does not owe you anything. If you want to thrive, if you want to succeed, you are going to have to make something somebody else wants. People think capitalism is selfishness. No, socialism is selfishness. The notion that I have to somehow supply you the money so you can sit in your basement and paint with watercolors. Socialism, the idea that I'm supposed to fulfill all your dreams by paying you for something I don't want and have no need for. 
But capitalism is precisely the opposite. We all do stuff in our daily jobs that we don't like. Why? Because there's a group for it who want to consume it. How many people love their daily job every day? I'm lucky. I get to go to a job that I really enjoy every day. But a lot of people don't. And you know why they do it? They do it because they understand that in a free society, they are going to have to produce something that is not entertaining and interesting only to them. If my podcast had one listener, I would have to quit podcasting. And if, if whatever business you go into has no customers, your business will go out of business. As I'm fond of saying, capitalism is forced altruism. It forces you to do something that somebody else wants if you want to live. Socialism is forced altruism in a different way. It's forcing your altruism to me. Right? So capitalism is about I have to be forced to do something good for you in order for me to live. And socialism is about the idea that I have to be forced to do something for you so that you can live. That's not the same thing at all. Capitalism also happens to be the most efficient system for the distribution of wealth in the history of mankind. It is the greatest capital, it is the greatest engine for growth in the history of mankind. It is the single greatest force for the empowerment of individual human beings in the history of mankind. At the time of recording, Donald Trump had 13% more approval rating than Emmanuel Macron. Weird how that works out, isn't it, Emmanuel? Really weird, but sorry, we'll go back to your assertion. By putting our own interests first, with no regards for others, we erase the very thing that a nation holds dearest, the thing that keeps it alive, its moral values. I take issue with this statement, Mr. Macron. I think it's very poorly formed. Let me explain why. It is not possible for you to act in your own interests and have no regard for others. That would be so blind and foolish that any move you made would instantly be foiled by the people for which you had no regard. You must understand what the other nations around you are doing, what they hold dear, what their interests are, what their likely reaction will be to your actions or your actions will fail. There is no way to act in your own interests and have no regard for others. If you had said, by putting our own interests first at the expense of others, I would have agreed. I would have said, well, that's absolutely true. Why should we just run roughshod over the national interests of other countries, such as their borders, their immigration laws, their customs, their trade, their armies, their people, the blood and treasure that they worked so hard to get? Why should we do that? But of course, that's not what you said. The second part of this half a sentence that I take umbrage with is the fact that you treat people putting their own interests first, rather than the interests of others, as some kind of moral deficit. What you're asking when you ask the Americans to cease being nationalistic and give up their hard-earned advantages so that people on the other side of the world can take advantage of them instead is for you to say, I am at the top and I am okay to pull up the ladder behind me now that I'm here. When you allow multinational corporations to export the low-end manufacturing jobs and other blue-collar work that gets exported across to China, Indonesia, and whatnot, what you are saying is to the working-class people of that country that there is no ladder by which they can crawl out of the poverty that they find themselves in. There is no route to the middle class for these people. Have you considered what an elitist position this is? Mr. I have a philosophy degree, Macron. 
have you considered that this is rank elitism at its very worst, and the globalist morality that you draw upon to justify this is actually a form of class warfare against those poor ignorant plebs that your Jupiterian presidency thumbs its nose at? But more importantly, have you considered that you are being exceptionally selfish by suggesting that a nation should not put its own interests first? That was Sargon of Akkad as heard on his podcast of November 13th. You know, when I hear discussions of this nature, I'm always pulled back to the works of Ayn Rand, who, who nailed all of these issues from the outset of her development of the philosophy of objectivism. I mean, everything about selfishness, altruism, morality, capitalism, free trade, all of it. And with that in mind, it was certainly great to hear Ben Shapiro make the moral case about socialism and capitalism. However, I have to take a moment to clarify something he said that I think slightly misses the mark, and that was when he said, quote, capitalism is forced altruism, socialism is forced altruism in a different way. Well, not quite, but I, get, I, I mean, I get what he's trying to say. First, the two forces, quote-unquote, that Shapiro refers to are not force. Only one of them is. Socialism operates on the use of physical force, that is, physical force applied against someone without that person's consent. And if we were talking about sex, the moral meaning of, of that use of force would be very clear, wouldn't it? I mean, that force could be applied through a prohibition of restriction of trade, a tariff, a tax, or regulations designed to circumvent choices that might otherwise be made. But the quote-unquote force behind capitalism is referred to as a market force. And market forces are created by the exercise of the free will of millions and millions of different people who are all operating on the principle of consent when they choose to trade with one another. That's not force, even though it, it gives us a sense of what we call a force, because it's something that we want to react to. So when Shapiro says that capitalism is forced altruism, that is not so. It is neither force nor altruism. It is rational self-interest in action. Now, I realize that when Shapiro makes a statement like this, he's really playing the Adam Smith card, you know, the invisible hand argument, which is an economic argument, not a moral one. And there's nothing wrong with that in the proper context. But if you're arguing that socialism has been taught to be moral, and you're trying to prove that capitalism's a moral system, you don't do it by, by saying that capitalism's altruistic and is the best income redistribution system. You, you might as well just go back to the drawing board. That's not a moral defense. It's, it's always falling back to the economic. So let's get back to the basics. I mean, this is always about the issue of selfishness and altruism, because that's the difference really between globalism and nationalism, isn't it? Nationalism is selfish. Globalism is the altruistic way to deal with the world. This is from the introduction to her book, The Virtue of Selfishness by Ayn Rand. And, and uh, you know, what she said in those first few pages of her book pretty well sum up almost all the conflicts you read about in the papers, see in the news, the conflicts in, in the world. And of course, her book's called The Virtue of Selfishness. And the first thing she says is, why do you use the word selfishness to denote virtuous qualities of character when that word antagonizes so many people to whom it does not mean the things you mean? My answer is, for the reason that makes you afraid of it. The meaning ascribed 
in popular usage to the word selfishness is not merely wrong, it represents a devastating intellectual package deal which is responsible more than any other single factor to the arrested moral development of mankind. In popular usage, the word selfishness is a synonym of evil. The image it conjures is that of a murderous brute who tramples over piles of corpses to achieve his own ends, who cares for no living being and pursues nothing but the gratification of the mindless whims of any immediate moment. And doesn't that sound like Macron's definition of the word? That's sort of how he was playing this card at the Remembrance Day ceremonies. Yet the exact meaning and dictionary definition of the word selfishness is concern with one's own interests. Now that sounds a little more like Trump's interpretation of the word, doesn't it? As he would apply it to his own nation, America first. She continues, this concept does not include a moral evaluation. It does not tell us whether concern with one's own interest is good or evil, nor does it tell us what constitutes man's actual interests. It is the task of ethics to answer these questions. But the ethics of altruism declares that any action taken for the benefit of others is good and any action taken for one's own benefit is evil. Thus the beneficiary of an action is the only criterion of moral value. And so long as that beneficiary is anyone other than oneself, well, anything goes. This is very basic. And this is how people think about what is moral. If it's moral if you did it for the other person, but if you did it for yourself, it's not. And that's exactly backwards. Hence, the appalling immorality, she continues, the chronic injustice, the grotesque double standards, the insoluble conflicts and contradictions that have characterized human relationships and human societies throughout history, all under the variance of altruistic ethics. Observe the indecency of what passes for moral judgment today. An industrialist who produces a fortune and a gangster who robs a bank are regarded as equally immoral since they both sought wealth for their own selfish benefit. A dictator is regarded as moral since the unspeakable atrocities he committed were intended to benefit, quote-unquote, the people, not himself. Observe what this beneficiary criterion of morality does to a person's life. The first thing you learn is that morality is your enemy. You have nothing to gain from it. You can only lose self-inflicted loss, self-inflicted pain, and the gray, debilitating pall of incomprehensible duties is all that you can really expect. The doctrine that concern with one's own interest is evil means that man's desire to live is evil, that man's life as such is evil, and no doctrine could be more evil than that. Yet, that is the meaning of altruism, implicit in such examples as the equation of an industrialist with a robber. There's a fundamental moral difference between a man who sees his self-interest in production and a man who sees it in robbery. The evil of the robber does not lie in the fact that he pursues his own interests, but in what he regards to be his interest. Not in the fact that he pursues his values, but in what he chooses to value. Not in the fact that he wants to live, but in the fact that he wants to live on a subhuman level. And of course, at someone else's expense. 
altruism permits no concept of a self-respecting, self-supporting man, a man who supports his life by his own effort and neither sacrifices himself nor others. Altruism permits no concept of a benevolent coexistence among men. It permits no concept of justice. If you wonder about the reasons behind the ugly mixture of cynicism and guilt in which most spend their lives, these are the reasons. Cynicism, because they neither practice nor accept the altruist morality, and guilt, because they dare not reject it. To redeem both man and morality, it is the concept of selfishness that one must redeem. And the reason why man needs a moral code will tell you that the purpose of morality is to define man's proper values and interests. That concern with his own interests is the essence of a moral existence and that man must be the beneficiary of his own moral actions. It is not a license to do as one pleases and it is not applicable to the altruist image of a selfish brute nor to many motivated by irrational emotions, feelings, urges, wishes, or whims, end quote. So there you have it. The critical distinction between rational self-interest and the traditional understanding of the word selfishness. And here's the bigger point when it comes to nationalism versus globalism. Let's expand on the individual principle and apply it to the collective. Nationalism represents the rational self-interest of a nation. Globalism represents the morality of altruism on a national scale where the moral agent is expected to practice self-sacrifice of his own interests for the interests of others, others who might even be an enemy. So let's take the principle one step further. Let's make the necessary distinction between the two kinds of nationalism. A nation can practice nationalism either as a policy of rational national interests, or it can practice nationalism as a policy of selfishness in the popular used sense of that word. But here's the ultimate joke on everyone who engages in this debate, one that really doesn't exist any longer. Because today's debate is not about two competing views of nationalism, even though that's an unavoidable part of the discussion. <laughs> but listen, listen to what the real debate has become about. Not about nationalism versus internationalism, which by the way, even there acknowledges the existence of nations, but about nation versus no nation, about having borders or not having borders, about having a national identity and culture versus having no identity or culture, which is the UN Trudeau view of globalism. That's where the problem is. And of course, all of these cultures are based on collectivism, socialism, sharing the wealth, so to speak. Now, our guest last week, Salim Mansour, as well as former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper last Sunday, called it just right when they pointed exactly to what Harper called alienism, which is the opposite of nationalism, and what Salim referred to as self-loathing and white guilt, where none is called for on the part of Western culture. In fact, every person who takes the effort to understand and support the fundamental values that have created the condition of individual freedom in the Western world should experience a selfish pride in continuing to play a positive role in working to maintain and expand those values. But don't expect anybody else to pat you on the back for doing it. However, being ashamed of ourselves is not acceptable, says Stephen Harper, and I wholeheartedly agree. 
Freedom, capitalism, and individual rights simply do not exist under collectivism, whatever form it takes. If I may sum up with these two slogans, you know, the kind you might want to put on a bumper sticker, or maybe somebody already beat me to it, but these seem a little obvious. You could have a bumper sticker that sort of read, globalists are a national threat. <laughs> or, for those who prefer to attack the concept and not its advocates, you could just say, globalism is a national crisis. I guess the social litmus test would be to see how many people even get the joke. <laughs> we'll give that one a thought, as we invite you to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Dad, what do you make of this? Congratulations, Frazier. You must be very proud. He doesn't say he's proud of me. He says that I should be proud of myself. Doesn't that seem a bit odd? Well, I'd say he's happy for you. Of course, I was a detective, so it comes easy to me. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>